Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And well, these podcasts are coming thick and fast at the moment. Uh, There were two last week, the uh, special of the last show at the Edinburgh Festival. It's already, it's funny, the Edinburgh Festival, it's very intense while you're there, sort of cocooned in a world of frenzied activity. And then very quickly, it kind of fades and you can't really remember much about it. I was trying to make some notes about what we did in Edinburgh and uh, I thought, what what happened that day? You know, we were only talking a short time ago. Uh, Anyway, you had that one and then another one after that, a kind of question time special And now it's the regular, but if you're on Patreon, you're going to get another podcast this week, the September bonus on the relationship between Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell, the last of the current series of uh, the relationship between prime ministers and their chosen special confidant. And by the way, it's a really interesting question as to whether Liz Truss has got an equivalent of Alistair Campbell or Nick Timothy and Theresa May, you know, uh, for a brief period before in that Shakespearean moment after the 2017 election, she was forced to sack her two chosen confidants, of which Nick Timothy was one. Has Liz Truss got that equivalent? Harold Wilson and Marcia Williams, they all feature in the... uh, Uh, bonus podcasts on the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics. Anyway, you will get the Blair Alistair Campbell one last in the current series on that theme. There will be another theme, uh, which I will announce soon for October. But now let's Oh yeah! But, oh, I was going to say let's let's return to Liz Truss, Prime Minister. Uh, I will do in a second, but let's uh, me discuss first of all with all of you, if it's okay with you, uh, what we'll be doing in our time together. Um, there will be my uh, reflections on the start of Liz Truss as Prime Minister. Uh, yeah, it's still, we've had months or weeks to get ready for this sentence. It's still feels weird and strange uttering the words. Some fantastic questions from all of you. Not all of you, us will be here all night and the next night, uh, but from some of you. And uh, yeah, so a lot to cram in as ever. And yet the full consideration of the start of the Liz Truss era special will be at King's Place on Monday, September the 19th, seven o'clock, Nice time to start, have a few drinks afterwards once we've made sense of it all. And of course, by then, she'll have been Prime Minister for a couple of weeks and we will have had the energy announcement and quite a lot to kind of get our teeth into on that night. Uh, So hopefully join you there at King's Place or it is being streamed live as well if you can't make it uh, to London. You can sit by your screen with a glass of wine or something even stronger. You might need it. Uh, I've hired ambulances for King's Place to be outside as we reflect the start of the Truss era. Here are my reflections uh, today, if it's okay with all of you. And uh, first of all, on the result itself, some people are saying, oh, it was a bit closer than people expected. Uh, I don't think that matters. I think the manner of the victory, the final victory with party members for uh, any of the parties is soon forgotten about. The situation with the parliamentary party is, of course, different. Certainly with uh, Labour, if uh, leaders have not 
won the support of a majority of Labour MPs, they are doomed to a tricky, tricky time. Uh, Ed Miliband didn't get the support of a majority of Labour MPs, and they went for him from the moment he got elected. Obviously, they did with Jeremy Corbyn tweeting immediately what a disaster it was going to be. And those who command the majority support of their MPs tend to have a much easier time in the House of Commons because the MPs have already invested their support and at least kind of mental energy in favour of this person. They will know that person knows they back them and will have hope of benefiting from prime ministerial patronage and so on. So Liz Truss goes into the House of Commons without that majority support of the parliamentary party. That could prove tricky. It will all depend above all on one key factor, and that's the opinion polls. Opinion polls are often wrong in the United Kingdom, uh, but it does not diminish their constant psychological impact on British politics. So if Liz Truss uh, gets a bounce in the coming days, and by that I mean an opinion poll lead for her party, uh, she will have more space to act uh, in the opening months than if she appears to be unpopular very, very quickly. If that happens with a general election looming, not until 2024 in my view, although if she gets a honeymoon, there will be the inevitable speculation about an early election. She will have that space with a honeymoon and opinion poll leads. And if that doesn't happen, uh, there will be a sense of crisis around her leadership right away. And you can see the reverse as well, that with uh, Labour currently anyway in the lead, Keir Starmer appears more confident. It is a massive psychological boost to wake up and read opinion polls, giving you or your party or both substantial leads. And it is equally psychologically kind of very difficult to take if you wake up and read your party is way behind in the polls. And for the MPs, that's true for the leaders, who cannot, in the end, hide their lack of confidence if they're behind in the polls, however hard they try. Um, But for the MPs, it's about how the hell we save our seats. So a key indicator in the coming months is the easiest one to follow, frankly, opinion polls. And they might all be wrong. They were in the build-up to 2017. Um, But watch them, because they will have an impact on the way Truss governs. And her demeanour and the behaviour of a parliamentary party conditioned to rebel. That's the big difference in the modern era for any Tory leader. The instinct of parliamentary parties, Tory ones, not really Labour ones, Tory ones, used to be loyalty. But it changed in the 1990s after Thatcher to uh, insurrectionary instincts at any given opportunity. And so there will be trouble for Liz Truss very early on unless she has that protective shield of an opinion poll lead. Uh, The next big thing to note, and it is massive, is the degree to which all the orthodoxies and assumptions that the uh, Conservative leadership have carried with them since uh, the financial crash in 2008 have been overtly 
overturned by Liz Truss. Uh, this, I don't think, has happened ever before uh, for a governing party to so change its stance while it's in government. So just rewind to the start of this era of Tory rule. I think an era, by the way, that will fascinate historians for hundreds of years to come. But at the beginning, Cameron and Osborne responded to the 2008 financial crash in a way that was deeply illuminating uh, and unique almost in the Western world of mainstream political parties. In response, remember everyone else, even Bush in the United States, responded with massive economic stimulus. It's big spending and all the rest of it. Gordon Brown coordinating when Obama came in. Merkel, very fiscally cautious, initially responded by spending. Those two popped up then in opposition and said real-term spending cuts were required as a response to this. As ever with politicians, they look back for guidance, the future being a hazy place. They looked to Lawson and Howe in the 80s and advocated this. This was the framing of the entire economic debate in the UK. What are you going to cut in terms of spending to address the deficit? That was the question asked of Ed Miliband and Ed Bulls in every BBC interview, um, framed by the Cameron and Osborne argument that the priority in in terms of economic policy is to balance the books, to wipe out the deficit, their pledge was to do it in a single parliament. And when they didn't do it, they had the chutzpah to say in the 2015 election, our pledge is to do it in that parliament. It didn't happen then either. But that was the framing of everything. And when, do you remember, Miliband delivered one of his, off the, not off the cuff, he learnt them by heart, speeches at a party conference, but forgot to mention the deficit. It was seen as the biggest gaffe since 1945 in modern British politics. Well, all of that has been turned overtly on its head by Liz Truss, who says economic consensus and orthodoxies of the past 20 years have been wrong. And she thinks it's perfectly legitimate to borrow and pay it back over a much longer period of time. It is. It remains staggering. And by the way, if I were a Tory MP, I would have voted for her on the basis of this framing alone. Sunak was absolutely rooted in the 1980s. He is right to proclaim his Thatcherism. She, though, rooted on the right in many respects, is a sort of Reaganite Tory, borrowing big to fund tax cuts. And But as I say, the break with the orthodoxy is immense. And you can see the kind of footsteps away from Osborne, Cameron, turbocharged Thatcherism. Uh, First from Theresa May, but not her Chancellor, Philip Hammond, who absolutely was part of that Treasury orthodoxy. It's why she and she fell out with Hammond, May, and her and Nick Timothy wanted Hammond out because of his kind of 1980s orthodoxies. And then you saw it with Johnson with his cakeism. Oh, yeah, public spending is good. Call me a Rooseveltian. Call me a Rooseveltian, big spender. Uh, you know, sort of put forward Keynesian arguments one moment, but Thatcherite tax-cutting arguments the next and all the rest of it. But it was done in a less overt, explicit way than trust. The last 20 years of Treasury 
and economic orthodoxies in the UK were wrong. And she's coming in to challenge them. Now, she's right about the borrowing. And by the way, Labour should say this is what we've been arguing for decades, that the rush to balance the books with uh, spending cuts actually ironically made the deficit worse because the economy wouldn't grow and she has made economic growth her priority. The madness is this, to borrow for tax cuts without any evidence that that in itself produces economic growth and, as Sunak has argued, might actually be inflationary, is what's crazy. Not the analysis that this kind of balance-the-book turbocharged Thatcherism was wrong. She's right about that, about the way she plans to use the borrowing. There's absolutely no evidence of this kind of trickle-down economics. You know that she's not going to go ahead with the corporation tax uh, increases that are being planned. As if that alone will attract businesses, new businesses, businesses to invest with all the obstacles uh, of Brexit, which she now supports passionately, um, or will encourage a revival in the regions because other things, you know, the levelling up agenda for her is going to be based on right-wing republicanism in the United States, low tax zones uh, in levelling up areas. But it's not all about tax. If you speak to business people, when the governor of the Bank of England uh, published uh, their latest appallingly gloomy Uh, set of forecasts for the UK economy. He said that again and again and again, when he met business leaders, the thing they said above all else, and remember the nightmare of energy bills loom and all the other stuff, was labour shortages arising from the pandemic, but Brexit consequences, all those Europeans gone and not coming back. And it's the biggest concern, according to the Government Bank of England, of businesses. They can't get the people. And then there's the infrastructure, which costs money. Businesses might be attracted to the north of England if it had the equivalent public transport infrastructure of some other places. Uh, I'm a big fan of what Andy Burnham has done in Manchester. He's wrong to cause a kind of fight with London, saying, look at London, you know, they should suffer more and we should get more. No. You know, the, London's public transport, by the way, the fares are astronomical in London too. But uh, the, the point is that they should uh, all have the same kind of level of infrastructure. Manchester, Newcastle, Liverpool, Leeds, Liverpool to Leeds, Manchester to Leeds, Manchester down to the, you know, everywhere. But that requires investment. It's not, um, businesses will say, that. oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. And if we had a different relationship with the European Union, oh, yeah, so the sort of labour shortage thing is being resolved. Um, and then I think you could get her dream of economic growth going. As to her goal of economic growth, you can see the electoral thinking behind what she's doing. Everything... Uh, she does now will not be aimed necessarily at um, delighting at every turn uh, the tiny membership that elected her to be prime minister but it will be about winning the next general election and she has said economic growth is her goal 
Now we're about, we're probably in it already. Uh, we're either in it or about to be in a deep recession, which means from the doldrums by 2024, it's quite possible the economy will be growing. So uh, she will borrow, borrow, borrow um, up to the 2024 election um, and then say, look, the economy is growing again because of what I've done. It won't be because of that. It's because it hits such depths. It could only go one way. But it will be that old 1992 general election message, don't let Labour ruin it. So that's the kind of plan. And then she'll go in with a manifesto uh, in which uh, the UK becomes in her vision, the sort of Singapore on Thames, but somehow magically with well-funded public services. Um, So that's the kind of electoral thinking. So obviously huge challenges for uh, Labour and huge opportunities. Um, Her team are utterly ideological, which is why they won't consider even Sunak, who is a Thatcherite, um, became an advocate of a windfall, uh, tax on these energy companies making huge profits. Um, it appears she's against that, although she's quite capable of changing her mind. Like the historian AJP Taylor, who once said, I hold, have strong views likely held. Uh, she has strong views likely held. But as things stand, she's against a windfall tax. She doesn't believe uh, in challenging the profits of these companies on ideological grounds. And she's surrounded by ideological right-wing zealots, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Ian Duncan-Smith, old Lord Frosty Frost was part of the coterie until apparently he demanded to be foreign secretary in, oh, Frosty Frost, eh? God, what what lofty uh, self-confidence at odds with ability. Anyway, um, she will... uh, have all kinds of reasons why she's not doing that windfall tax unless she does it, because she is of that sort of flimsy character. But that's what uh, she will do. She is surrounded by kind of ideological right-wingers, though not wholly, in the new cabinet. Um, uh, But their vision could only be realised, I think, if they win again. Uh, and then with quite a big majority. So Labour have this task. Keir Starmer, in many ways, of course, faces a famously mountainous challenge. You know, if you lose big one election, coming back to win the next one is tricky. And December 2019 was a heavy defeat. Scotland remains a nightmarish problem uh, for him. The Red Wall, I think, much less so. But he has always been lucky in another way, in that the kind of battle of ideas is moving leftwards. It was fascinating seeing Rishi Sunak, this uh, self-proclaimed fiscal conservative, spend big again and again in various interventions to protect people from the wild external forces erupting around the UK and other countries. Um, And she is doing the same. But she is also doing this, Liz Truss, legitimising arguments about borrowing. The reason you haven't heard that much about Labour's plans for a so-called green revolution, where they plan to spend £28 billion a year, 
um, is because the money was coming from borrowing. And, I've, you know, when I've spoken to Rachel Reeves, she had a chance about these plans. She kind of almost whispers, yeah, that's from borrowing, borrowing. Well, Liz Truss has put an argument for borrowing. It's been hailed by the Daily Mail and the Telegraph and so on. And so there's a kind of legitimizing of borrowing. Obviously, when Labour proposed to borrow, the Daily Mail go bonkers and say this will be the end of civilization as we know it. But it's harder for them to, harder for Liz Truss to, when she is planning to borrow billions and billions and billions over the next couple of years. And so in that space, there is the opportunity for a slightly more grown-up debate about if a government borrows, what should it borrow for? And this leads to the battle over which party is best placed to generate economic growth. The big problem of the UK, low growth, poor productivity. And these tax cuts are blowing the money. Um, you know, that she, she the, the, she's going to have to borrow to make up for the planned money being raised from the corporation tax rises, from the national insurance rise. Um, it will give a few pennies to a few people, um, nothing compared with what they need for the fuel bills, which is going to come about with another massive uh, spend to, in effect, freeze those prices. So how do you grow the economy? Now, Keir Starmer has played safe so far by saying his big idea is economic growth. The battle now, it's her big idea as well. So it's how. And where he has some space is that she, Liz Truss, from the right of the Tory party, has legitimised the idea of borrowing. Whereas the framing of Cameron, Osborne, Philip Hammond and indeed Rishi Sunak was this was all terrible and the objective must be to balance the books. Um, she's, she's turned that upside down. Will Labour use it? Well, let's keep our eyes on that as well as the development of the Liz Truss era. And we begin with your questions on the Liz Truss era. And we begin actually with the uh, legendary broadcaster Tom Sutcliffe, who poses an interesting question. Has any prime minister arrived with lower expectations than those that greet Liz Truss? Uh, it's a, it is interesting because it, it immediately made me look back quite some way. Uh, and it, and you see, John Major, when he came in in 1990, even though the Tory party were in a sort of traumatised state about the fall of Thatcher, uh, there really was a sense uh, of a kind of new government and quite a lot of excitement around about Major, who had got a honeymoon, which really lasted with some dips for the two years up until the election that he won. Um, even when you think about, look back to Theresa May, I mean, she had a 20-point lead when she called that 2017 election. Um, and I remember the uh, editor of The New Statesman, Jason Cowley, writing a long essay about the era of Mayism, an essay that is no longer on The New Statesman website. But you see what I mean about the kind of excitement that some of these kind of prime ministers who come in without winning in a general election, Gordon Brown was so far ahead 
uh, when he came in in 2007 that he famously was tempted to call an election that he then didn't. Um, so I can't think of an equivalent. Uh, there was... There were big doubts when Margaret Thatcher became leader of the Conservative Party in February 1975. And um, there was both a mixture of excitement. The Daily Mail right away began its sort of propaganda campaign on her behalf, christening her Maggie to make her more human and that kind of thing. But the, the, her shadow cabinet were full of doubters. But of course, that was leader of the opposition. Uh, by the time she became Prime Minister in May 1979, there was, on the right at least, a lot of excitement around her, along with some doubt. So, no, there is no equivalent of this when, on the eve of her arrival, polls suggested her coming in would actually increase the Labour lead. Now, the reality over the next few weeks, and we have to wait a few weeks, might be different. That um, that in a way, the advantage of low expectations is that you can pleasantly surprise and you can see a situation where columnists write, well, this is all going so much better than anyone dared to expect. You know, that kind of column, very easy column to write, by the way, because it appears counterintuitive, but you only do it if everyone else is thinking it as well. That kind of column. Um. But I would say at this point, Tom, uh, no, no prime minister I can recall has arrived in office with such low expectations. People are comparing the context to the one Thatcher faced in 79. It's actually much tougher uh, anyway, um, in all kinds of ways. But um, there was, as I say, with her uh, on the right, considerable anticipation by 1979. Um, so uh, she can only go up, can she? Or can she go down further when reality collides with that Tory leadership contest, which was a kind of fantasy world? Anyway, and now on to, uh, yeah, a slightly different topic. Thanks, Tom. Rob Ward says... Um, I was interested when I came to see the Edinburgh show on the fairly lukewarm response from the audience towards Andy Burnham. I'm slightly surprised by that, Rob, because after one of the shows, quite interesting, I signed books at the end of the Edinburgh show and uh, somebody came up who was um, who described himself as a One Nation Tory uh, member who had actually left the party over Johnson and was not thrilled by the prospect of Liz Truss. And she said to me, if Andy Burnham were Labour leader, this is, she, she was a Scottish former Tory member, um, she would be very tempted to vote Labour. But I, So I can't remember that, uh, Rob, but you were there. So uh, he said, and Rob says, maybe I'm biased because I'm Scouse and an Everton fan. But it seems to me, with his three key ideas of PR, maximum devolution, and replacing the Lords with an elected body, he sit on something that would be very popular with many progressives in the country. Uh, I can see Labour, Lib Dem and Greens rallying behind such an agenda. Obviously, he needs a seat in the Commons, but I can't see that being an issue. I think it is an issue, Rob, uh, when you're, it's all too transparent when you leap from the mayoralty of Manchester to a seat. Um, but um, yeah, no, I, I, I rate him highly. He's, he's an interesting figure and he's changed a lot, certainly in his current uh, persona as mayor of Manchester. It's quite easy to forget that he began as favourite for in the 2015 leadership contest when Ed Miliband resigned. Um, and it was the one that in the end Jeremy Corbyn won. 
And he famously launched his campaign, Andy Burnham, at the Bloomberg offices. And it was a very kind of new Labour uh, opening speech. Uh, and the whole contest kind of felt not right for the times. Again, people looking back. And then, of course, Corbyn entered and blew the whole thing apart and, and won it. Um, but I think he is in, uh, I think he's, he's done brilliantly in Manchester. And I think what he's doing with the buses, um, taking them over and planning and offering a better deal will literally reconnect some of those who feel left behind. That phrase, connecting those who've been left behind, which was used in the Brexit referendum. They were left behind for all kinds of reasons, nothing to do with the European Union, one to do with the uh, deregulation of the buses in the 1980s, which meant, you know, routes didn't go past people's houses, and it was all terrible. Anyways, he's sorting it out. Um, but for now, Rob, that there isn't a vacancy. If Keir Starmer continues to enjoy this poll lead, he will take Labour into the next general election and have a good chance of winning in some form or another. Uh, thank you, Rob. Uh, Venetia Kane says, inspired by the death of Gorbachev, my question is, do you think decency, genuine niceness and having high ideals make success as a political leader impossible? Are those with such qualities too able to see more than one side of a question and feel some sympathy for it? I think particularly of Carter, Obama and perhaps Starmer. Do such people lack the hardness required to be a good manager, director, administrator? I don't know. Well, Obama won two elections um, and, you know, uh, did quite a lot of good stuff, but he could have done a lot more. I see what you mean, Venetia, by putting him in the list. Keir Starmer, some, uh, a Shadow Cabinet member said to me, and I think it's accurate, uh, Keir Starmer is both decent and ruthless. And I think both are required in leadership. Um, he, he's a nice guy. He's decent, but he... I, 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 seen it uh, is absolutely ruthless he'll he'll do what it takes to win um and i think so you need a mix of things as as a leader to be an absolute bastard is not a qualification for leadership but ruthlessness is um but you do need empathy and decency as well the people who work with you have to like you um, it was very interesting watching closely. In fact, I did a Radio 4 series just interviewing loads of people who had worked with Blair, giving insights behind the scenes when he was still prime minister. And they all liked him. Um, and so that is a quality of leadership. But he too could be ruthless, utterly ruthless when required. Uh, thank you, Venetia. Oh, and Venetia, is it significant that all these, in inverted commas, nice people are on the left? Well, I can tell you sometimes uh, left governments are, you, you, you kind of navigate the various factions and feel waves of hate wherever you go. Um, the Cameron thing was quite interesting. You know, Cameron and Oswald, they were all very matey and nice to each other. Uh, it, it was uh, calamitous in many ways, that government. Um, but they were all very decent. So I think leadership uh, is it requires such a complex mix of skills. Uh, thank you, Venetia. Uh, Steve Petrie, uh, as we approach the Truss era, the country faces issues uh, which the strongest, most competent administration would struggle to address. If she is to do so, Truss will need to navigate challenges within her parliamentary party. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the consequences of a divisive leadership. 
uh, campaign. Yeah. Uh, Steve mentions that Sunak will be on the back benches, uh, could be troublesome, although he's pledged not to be. Uh, those pledges are not necessarily uh, lifelong. Um, and she will have two uh, current ministers and other big beasts who can't find a place in her administration will have few incentives to remain loyal. Uh, he mentions Michael Gove and indeed Lord Frosty Frost with his Telegraph column. Uh, there will be Johnson. MPs will become increasingly nervous, as I've mentioned earlier, about the opinion polls if the Tories are behind. Can she navigate these challenges and stay the course till 2024? Or will she be forced to seek a mandate from the wider electorate before then? Well, she said in her opening statement, um, she mentioned the election will be in 2024. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it will be. Theresa May used to say she wouldn't call an early election and then did. I think there's just too much on the agenda and it would be utterly counterproductive to call a general election when there's this uh, hazardous autumn, winter, and who knows for how long, uh, to navigate. So I think she will have to try and stay the course. I sus- it will have to go disastrously wrong for the Tories to remove her. They might do, but it will have to go disastrously wrong, not just quite wrong, um, because it's getting silly. The number of prime ministers there selecting with about 28 party members aged 250. Um, it, it felt silly, actually, when the leadership result was announced, just how few were involved, you know, uh, 60,000 uh, for Sunak. I mean, that that's the number of 10 Spurs at home these days in the new stadium. Uh, it, it felt silly and they're, they're pushing it. They have to do it again. Steve also adds, I've been enjoying suggestive activities for the Rock and Roll Politics Collective, but I can't help feeling many of them are worthy, but a bit dull, laundry, ironing, keep fit, bread making. Well, Steve, I call some of that stuff glamorous. Bread making, isn't that what John Lennon used to do, uh, you know, when he disappeared for five years? And keeping fit, is, there's nothing more glamorous than that. But anyway, he says, I've, I take your point about laundry and ironing. I've recently joined the local male voice choir, which I'm enjoying, and wonder if there might be a space in the collective for a non-gender specific choir. This could be open to all members with more importance given to enthusiasm than singing ability. Thank God for that, Steve. Uh, Practicing songs from the choir's repertoire might also help pass the time while undertaking those more worthy activities. Singing while ironing, though, Steve, will be difficult because um, those who iron listen to my, to our podcast. Um, They can't sing, iron and listen to our podcast. Uh, So anyway, but there's the offer. Uh, a collective for a choir, Rock and Roll Politics Choir uh, Cooperative. Thank you, Steve. I'm sure you'll be inundated, uh, or I will, and I'll let you know. Um, over now to uh, Buxton Phil, um, who I met, I think, uh, yeah, I did meet at King's Place the other time. Uh, Buxton Phil says, still adore the podcast. So thank you, Phil. You might be joining a choir now and eagerly await the Patreon uh, updates. You'll be getting the uh, Blair Campbell bonus podcast soon, Phil. I listen now, uh, still listening while walking the dog in Buxton, rather than hiking the Himalayas or attempting a Guinness World Record attempt. Well, let us know if you, you know, aim higher. Uh, but it's quite nice. I mean, walking the dog in Buxton, uh, you know, there are worse things to be doing. I don't know whether Steve would call that 
unglamorous compared to his cooperative choir. Uh, but, you know, Buxton, nice place to walk the dog while you're listening. Uh, and Buxton Phil wonders, is the UK special in being rubbish in terms of long-term thinking on important things like energy, infrastructure, etc.? And is our political system to blame? Given our national psyche, would independence of political direction uh, help? In other words, he is not uh, advocating uh, public ownership uh, because he thinks that will just lead to underinvestment and bad decisions. The trouble is, Phil, how do you get – you can involve technocrats. My favourite model uh, for public service delivery, which I think could be replicated, is what happened in London with the underground. You had an elected mayor accountable – for sorting out transport, and that mayor uh, was accountable uh, to, you know, by um, the London Assembly and ultimately the electorate and indeed um, uh, transport for London. But he then got in the best people, Livingston, to sort it out. He went to New York. These, this is your point about technocrats, and said, look, you sorted out the New York subway, sort out ours. He knew... Uh, we had little expertise in infrastructure in the UK because infrastructure has never been a government priority. So we got people in from the outside and sorted it out. And now every mayor has to deliver good transport uh, or else they're out, but they bring in people to do the delivery. So I take your point, but it has to be, you can't just have unelected people doing it without any accountability. Um, so it's just getting the mix Right. Uh, thank you, Buxton Phil. Sean Colston says, uh, Hi, so I'm about to start reading the new biography of Harold Wilson by Nick Thomas Simmons. Yeah, I'm going to be interviewing Nick Thomas Simmons. I was planning to do it this week, but obviously with the trust premiership, um, it, 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 you know, it didn't seem, seem right. But maybe uh, next week is a fascinating uh, book, which I strongly recommend. And it got me thinking if there are comparisons between Wilson and Keir Starmer. I think that the skill of both is underestimated, and it's perhaps only in hindsight that Wilson's reputation has begun to be rehabilitated. Well, Nick's book is an important contribution to a long overdue rehabilitation of Harold Wilson. Um, he was sort of airbrushed out of history for decades and was this ghostly figure. Uh, but yeah, Sean adds, I understand that Starmer admires Wilson. And there were obviously many times that people were critical of Wilson's leadership, but he kept winning elections. And I wonder if Starmer could yet defy his critics. Yeah, um, I, I, he's, he, he, uh, I think Keir Starmer could well be Prime Minister after the next election. And if he were to do so, uh, it would be an epic achievement because so few Labour leaders pull it off. Um and he has said that he is a Wilson admirer, although I suspect Wilson would not have done some of the things Keir Starmer has done um, to sort of uh, try, as he would see it, copy New Labour in the early phase of New Labour. But what New Labour did was not what he's doing in terms of managing the party. And, and Wilson certainly uh, would not have kicked out Corbyn. Um, but anyway... There we go. I'm not getting into that argument with you all again. Uh, thank you, Sean. Yeah, I think, the, you know, there are lessons to be learned from Nick's book on Wilson about how you manage a big, unwieldy party like Labour and win. Wilson won four elections. Um, next, thank you, uh, Jamie Singleton, the bell ringer. See, Steve Petrie, you talk about glamour. We've got a bell ringer, Jamie who listen to the podcast while ringing bells. Well, they can't do because it's so loud, but you know what I mean. Anyway, Jamie says, 
I love the show. There's been some debate about comedian Joe Lysett's appearance on Lauren Kuzberg's new Sunday morning politics show, where the cost of living was discussed. Some think that a comedian is not an appropriate commentator for this type of serious subject matter. Others say that politicians and party speakers rarely shed light on issues anyhow, and they should be scrapped in favour of expert commentators like Martin Lewis. What do you think? Well, I just think uh, two things about it. One, um, I don't know if you all watch Laura's first uh, show. Um, uh, the, the, they had a panel of three. Uh, the comedian, Joe Lysett, who took the, the, the piss out of the whole thing and sort of subverted the whole genre uh, in front of our eyes. Um and they had a couple of other people on, someone who worked with Boris Johnson and Emily Thornbury. And as ever with these programmes, uh, they cram too much in. You know, they, they, I, they never have this discussion, which I used to have sometimes with editors at the BBC, uh, which is, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get a panel of three and we'll, oh, we better have a comedian, you know, because we're, we're looking for younger people and they'll make it laugh. And it, anyway, we need to lighten it up. It's also grim. Let's have a laugh. So we'll have a comedian. Oh, we've got, we've got all these Tories on. We better have a shadow cabinet member. Yeah. Get Emily. Oh, yeah. But what about we need, oh, yes, yeah, so we need another woman and Boris and, uh, Boris is last week. You better get another person in. So we get a Boris advisor. So the three panelists and then they say, oh, yeah. Well, it, can't all be heavy stuff they're talking about. Let's talk about the Foo Fighters concert at Wembley. Oh, yeah, the NASA thing, good shot of rockets and stuff. Yeah, get them on that. And actually, I timed it. Um, each discussion, each member of the panel, in, in a, whatever you think of having the comedian, um, they had about 40 seconds each for each of these rushed items. It's ridiculous. No one talks like that. Now, I completely accept this podcast goes some way the other way but there is what a Blair would call a third way right you know so you you sit down I think right we want to have a good conversation and it's good by the way that they're saying the tone's going to be conversational not confrontational uh that kind of Paxman John Humphrey thing has gone out the window um and that's good but when you have a conversation with someone you don't rush one thing after another for 40 seconds and then move on, blah, blah, blah. And also, tonally, to put in comedians, it's like question time. Question time has been just so tediously predictable uh, with five panellists. It used to be four, because each panellist gets about a total in the programme of four minutes for six items. And so nothing develops. And so a quick shouting match is what they're looking for. Uh, but that's, you know, in advance what the shouting match is going to be when you read the panellists. And they often have a comedian who doesn't know what's going on about anything. Um, so, you know, you've you, you got to have the self-confidence to say, this stuff is bloody interesting. They did bloody well to get both Truss and Sunak on the eve of this uh, debate, especially trust, even though it was safe for her to do it because the ballot had closed. Um, and you've just got to have confidence that this material is compelling and interesting and weird and dark and funny in itself, you know, uh, without having to contrive all this extra stuff. Just let stuff breathe. And if they did a bit of that, uh, they would have in a very simple way, 
reinvented the political program. Instead, they cram all this stuff in. They misjudge it with uh, this guy who came in. And he did really turn the whole, just expose the kind of absurdity of the panel, really. Um, it only works, that panel, if you give the panel time to breathe and accept. It was really, when I did the, uh, I was on the panel uh, of the Sunday politics program, Andrew Neal used to do. And sometimes we had quite a lot of time. And I was usually on. Uh, with Isabel Oakeshott and Tom Newton Dunn. And sometimes we agreed about things. Uh, and, you know, it was much more, it was quite interesting when that happened. And then other times we disagreed along lines that were, you would predict. Um, but that for that to happen, you need to give it room to breathe and not cram the topics you discuss too much. Uh, I, I feel kind of evangelical about this because uh, I, I know. I'm right. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Over now to Dominique Joule, our correspondent in France. Uh, question, in France, inflation is five point... Oh, by the way, Dominique sent a, a photo. She's always travelling around. Thank you for the photo, Dominique. I looked at it, it looked beautiful. And, uh, you know, I looked at it with envy. Uh, in France, inflation is 5.8%. Cost of electricity has risen by 4% and will be extended until 2023, thanks to the government-imposed cap, and teachers have been awarded an unconditional 10% pay rise. What's the downside to this approach in the context of the UK, in your view? Well, I think, Dominica, we're about to see quite a lot of this stuff happening. Not inflation. Uh, the inflation in the UK is going to be in double figures for some time. Uh, but I think we, we're going to see the electricity issue addressed for the short term, at least. Whether the wacky markets uh, in the UK will be addressed, I wonder. Um, and, yeah, I think quite a lot of the pay rises will be uh, uh, higher than currently scheduled in the UK. Um, but, you know, I've got a feeling that even though countries like Germany are far more dependent on Russian gas than the UK, they will sort this out more quickly than the UK. They're already planning for the long term. You know, they're storing, storing gas, already limiting the use of energy in some uh, spheres, uh, whereas the UK, it's the usual kind of anarchy. Um, but anyway, thanks, Dominica. Uh, keep us informed with the European dimension of this uh, dark autumn. Uh, dark autumn, but in ways that you can sometimes have a laugh as well. Please note, BBC, but just... Give it space. And uh, next to Lee Buchanan, uh, listening to you as I stole, strolled through Barrio Saint Antoni here in Barcelona. See, we're, we're, we are so European today. I think we're going to the United States in a minute as well. I heard you mention the rather long biography of LBJ by Robert Caro. Yeah, I couldn't remember Robert Caro's name, you know, even though I've read the damn thing. Uh, well, I've now listened, listen to this. I've now listened to 97 hours of it on Audible, and I'm only in his early years in the Senate in the mid-50s. Oh, my God, yeah, it, they just are incredible. Uh, the depth is the detail, but it's it's evoked in a very sort of kind of cinematic way. And the picture he paints of LBJ makes 
Boris Johnson and Frosty look like the rank amateurs they undoubtedly are. LBJ lied and cheated and destroyed lives and reputations in his upward climb. He achieved a lot in the end, although I have several more hours before I get there. Yeah, thousands of hours, uh, Les. Sorry, I just say Lee. Les who uh, is listening in uh, this beautiful uh, stroll in Barcelona. He achieved a lot in the end. This is LBJ, not Les. Uh, Although I have several, yeah, several more hours to go. But boy, what a villain he was in his early years. If you want to know the workings of the US government in the 30s, 40s and 50s, this is the book to read and listen. Don't miss it. Uh, Yeah, I, I agree. And if you want to get a sense of why politics is a drama, but a drama that matters. Get, read these books, um, and and you're right. On many levels, he was a rogue. But uh, you know, to revise Gordon Brown's phrase, he was a rogue with a purpose. Um, but worked on higher levels than any uh, figure we've got in British politics at the moment. Uh, thanks so much. Enjoy Barcelona, uh, Les. Uh, Russell Shackleton, uh, great to hear the show from Edinburgh. And I was listening to the bonus question episode this morning during my walk. Um, oh, you were walking uh, on Green and Common, I think, Russell. A couple of questions came to mind as I passed the gate where the peace women demonstrated in the 1980s. I'm only going to read one of them, if that's okay, because uh, we've got so much we're cramming in. Do marches really have as big a short-term or medium impact on government policy as folklore might suggest? Um, Now, I don't know what you think. Uh, By the way, he suggests for bonus Patreon podcasts, take a look at how different governments have responded to demonstrations. Yeah, that's a very rich and original theme, actually, because I don't think that's been done as a kind of theme. Uh, Yeah, good idea. Let me think about that. But I have to say, I might be spoiling it by concluding that I don't think uh, demonstrations do make a difference very often to government policy. What makes a difference to government policy, I'm afraid, is winning elections. Um, you know, probably a lot of you listening, uh, although you, many of you far, far too young, went on many demonstrations in the 1980s. Um, I remember going in, as a student in 81 on a huge uh, a CND rally uh, felt really exciting, and the then Labour leader Michael Foot spoke. Interestingly, Jonathan Dimbleby, uh, the broadcaster, spoke, and Paddy Ashdown, who was then, uh, I think, he continued to be a supporter of unilateral nuclear summit, uh, changed nothing, of course, nothing at all. Um, and you know, the, there was the famous Iraq demo. I think it did. Shocked Tony Blair on one level because the people on the demo he would have hoped would be the sort of left he always wanted to show he was distant from, but actually it was full of the kind of people he was targeting as a prime minister. And I think it freaked him a bit, but of course didn't change policy and so on. Um, but let me know if you can think of examples of change. Um, the poll tax is one uh, that Russell mentions. I don't think it was the demos that changed uh, the poll tax. I think it was by-elections, opinion polls, um, and, you know, Tory councillors up in arms and all that kind of thing. Um, but let me know if you disagree, because it's a very interesting theme. I think people, by the way, should carry on. The other one, of course, Brexit. Those uh, anti-Brexit marches change nothing. Um we all have to do it. You all have to express views. And Twitter is not uh, 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 an equivalent. 
but I don't think winning elections, that's how policy can change. Um, and finally, Simon Lockyer. Uh, yeah, back onto the BBC. He said, I was sad to see the loss of Dateline as it garnered views from a varied spectrum of commentators while it was far too short a programme uh, and always seemed rushed. It did focus on the main topics of the day. Yeah, it started off as 45 minutes, then it was cut to half an hour. And as I think I said last week, the only issue should have been, did they make it an hour or 45 minutes uh but instead people who probably had never even watched it uh have dropped it uh do you think the new prime minister will continue their campaign against the bbc uh and possibly prepare the ground for privatization or a new funding model uh regards from simon who's still harvesting home group grown fruit and veg soon to be baking bread for winter providing we can get the gas um yeah well uh, uh you're going to be all right simon homegrown fruit and veg and uh homemade bread um and i think i call all that very glamorous i know steve petrie argues it isn't i think it's you can't get much more glamorous than that until you become a hollywood star um on on the bbc yeah i think she will continue to be uh pretty or put pressure on the bbc partly because they all know it works i once did a a panel there was something about the bbc and uh you know one of its regular crises and they were getting a lot of accusations of uh left-wing bias and i did a discussion it was on the world tonight with a tory commentator and at the end i said you know, you can't believe this when there is at least as much evidence of a fear of the Tory newspapers and Tory politicians and Tory Twitterati uh, influencing BBC output as anything else. And um, this person say, yeah, I agree. I actually agree with you. Um, but we know it works every time. Every time there's an article from Charles Moore or someone from the Times or the Mail, it kind of works every time. They all freak out. And when they're criticised in The Guardian, they're quite pleased because they say, oh, yeah, that means people think, uh, maybe the right will think we're not, you know, they're so confused about it all. Um, but so, yeah, they'll carry on the pressure. And Liz Truss famously said GB News was a more reliable source than the BBC. Um and she did it, I think, without her little mischievous smile. Anyway, uh, we well, what a week. Uh, there are going to be many twists and turns this week and the following week. Don't forget to get your tickets for King's Place on September the 19th. Um, and we will be then, as I say, two weeks in. And we'll need to make sense of it all, perhaps have a few drinks to kind of uh, for our own state of minds um and yeah on patreon a bonus podcast coming up very soon um i was gonna say have a great week have a week where you will watch sometimes in disbelief and other times think ah hmm, maybe this will it work won't it work anyway whatever um but for sure in this unsure world we've got to get together again next week thank you very much thanks to all of the brilliant podmasters and uh yeah take a deep breath get through the week bye